HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Spill and Dish, a podcast from the Specialty Food Association. Founded in 1952, SFA is the leading trade association and source of information about the $194 billion specialty food industry. We champion the food producers, retailers, and other buyers who make up the specialty food world. Each episode, we want to share the stories behind the products made and sold by our members who are helping shape the future of food. You can listen and discover the inspiration, recipe, craft, and culture, ingredients, and production methods that help answer the question, what makes specialty food special? I'm today's host, Julie Gallagher, Content Director at SFA. We're excited to bring you today's episode and so happy to be working with Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit podcast network covering the world of food, drink, and agriculture, and expanding the way eaters think about food. Today's guest is Jonathan Milo Leal, founder of Milo's Whole World Gourmet LLC, a creator and producer of specialty foods based in Ohio that seeks to procure ingredients from the finest sources in the Great Lakes region and other areas of the U.S. It's barbecue and pasta sauces, Jellies, spreads, and condiments, which are marketed under the Brownwood Farms brand, are produced in small batches with clean and minimal ingredients. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining me today. I've attended and enjoyed your fancy food show presentation, so it's great to get the chance to speak with you one-on-one. I appreciate you having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Jonathan, your company is based in Ohio. Have you always lived there? Uh, no, I was a actually a missionary kid, so I grew up all over the world. Uh, my parents were in Nepal when I was young, and I've lived in Mexico and basically all over the United States. So I've been in Ohio, though, for 25 years, which I guess is enough to make me uh, a local for the state here. <laughs> <laughs> and have you always been interested in food? Yeah, I was always, man, when I was a kid, I was my, my sister and I would uh, do 
uh, restaurants for our parents, you know, for their anniversary. So we would always set up a menu and make food and make meals. And it was uh, <laughs> some of the some of the uh, results were not so good, but it was uh, it was fun. So, I've, yeah, I've always enjoyed being around food. OK. And then tell me about what you studied in school. Had you did you want to pursue like a culinary career or not at all. <laughs> it's funny where life takes you. Most of the people that I know, you know, I'm in my mid fifties now, and most of most people I know that are in their in the same age bracket of, you know, they're on their second or third career usually, you know, about this time. So I got uh, initially out of out of college, I was a reporter for a number of years. Did that for several years. Covered the uh, covered the Murrah bombing in Oklahoma City when I lived out there. That was that was basically the end of my reporting life. I was I like I'd have a life change, so I went back to school. Got a couple of degrees in French and teaching. I thought I was going to be a teacher. Uh, 9-11 happened. Uh, long story short, I ended up uh, doing some uh, some cooking um, on the side, and that sort of morphed into this business. So it was sort of a natural progression from one thing to another at that point. Okay. And I understand that Milo's Whole World Gourmet is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Congratulations on that. It is. Um, thank you. Take me back to the beginning and how you got the business off the ground. So we are in Southeast Ohio, uh, Athens, which is the home to Ohio University. And there is a pretty unique uh, nonprofit here in this town called AceNet. And it is a nonprofit business incubator that focuses mainly on food. Uh, so, it, you know, it has a shared use kitchen and it had a shared use bottling facility. And so I got connected into there and uh, ended up starting making some sauces with really no idea what I was doing <laughs> at the very beginning. But they had all the infrastructure there to, you know, to make it possible. So by kind of getting my feet well without having to, you know, lose my shirt at the very beginning with a lot of investment, it was a great way to sort of figure out what we were doing uh, and grow, you know, from that point. Okay, so at that point, you um, had wanted to sell the products into retail? Yes, so we uh, we made so many mistakes in our early years. I actually taught a class for the SFA on like the top 10 mistakes manufacturers make. When they asked me to do that, I'm like, only 10? Come on, I can give you 100, <laughs> you know, from all the from all the early, early mistakes. But uh, yeah, the goal was to put product into jars and to sell it at retail. And I, like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. The resources really weren't there at the time that I'm aware of like they are now through the SFA and a number of other places uh, for really um, – making sure that you know what you're doing going in. Okay. So what were some of those hurdles that you had to scale? Oh gosh. Uh, you know, it was a lot of, it was just ignorance about the industry, ignorance about, you know, I was buying the wrong jars, the wrong labels, spending money in all the wrong places, you know, trying to, you know, really focus on, you know, really interesting graphics and brands and not really focusing on the costs and the, the jars and the things like that. There's just a lot of things that were, were done wrong. In year two, we came, we should totally change our packaging and recipes and, you know, went through one of many, many reinventions that we've gone through sort of over the last 20 years as we've really figured out what works in this, you know, in this business. So I spend a lot of time, we do a lot of co-packing now in addition to our brand. And so I spend a lot of time mentoring the companies that come along that are, I can see me in them from way back when. And I'm like, all right, so here are all the things you shouldn't do. <laughs> let's, let's help you avoid some of the, uh, some of the mistakes that I made um, early on. Okay. So yeah, as a food maker, who's launched products, you definitely seem uniquely qualified to sort of sympathize with the trials and tribulations mm -hmm. of those working with a co-packer. When did Absolutely. those co-packing services come into the equation? 
when you know, started about five or six years ago when we realized, you know, we had excess capacity and we had a, you know, very qualified team of people here to, you know, to do the work. It took a while for us to really figure out how to do it properly. Um, so if any of my early stage Copac clients are listening, I apologize. <laughs> we were figuring out our way, you know, through here, but it's become something that we're, we have learned how to do really well uh, at this point. And, you know, having that, I really enjoy working with the clients that are coming up in this industry because, you know, anything I can do to help them be more successful and avoid the mistakes, you know, is a win-win for everybody. Right. And you tout that you have um, boutique co-packing services, which I thought was so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you able to do that? Because we hear so much from our members that, you know, the relationships with their co-packers are strained and there's sort of like a disconnect on a on number of levels. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, about the services you provide? Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, I, we call ourselves co-packer rehab sort of jokingly because we, I could write a book in one of these days. I, I keep compiling these stories that you wouldn't believe the things I've heard from clients that come to us about things that have happened at their last co-packers, including a murder, believe it or not, at one of them. A murder? Um, a murder. Yes. The, the client showed up and the, the owner was being let out in handcuffs for killing one of his employees. So, I mean, it, it's just crazy. Oh Some of the stuff. I know. <laughs> it's just like, I, we can have a whole podcast just about the stories I know about this industry that are nuts. I mean, just absolutely nuts. So, but at the end of the day, what we find people really are looking for more than anything is good communication and transparency about what's going on. I mean, I've heard stories of co-packers substituting ingredients and making a lot of mistakes and not just a lot of things where there wasn't really good integrity or communication with the client. And that's, I think that's one of the key things that really sets us apart. I mean, it, we're not, so when we say boutique, that's sort of a fancy way of saying we're more expensive, but I, you get what you pay for, you know, at the end of the day. And then, um, how was, how was it co-packing during the pandemic? You know, it was interesting. It was way busier than everything was way busier. You know, I, I was reading the New York Times one morning and was talking about all these different industries and how they were affected, you know, right at the height of the pandemic. And like out of 40 industries, like 38 of them were negative to sharply negative. And one of the two that were strongly positive was grocery, food and grocery, because uh, people were eating, you know, they were eating at home, which meant that they had to shop at the store, which meant they had to buy products. And so the, the demand for our brand really spiked quite a bit and the demand for co-packing i think a lot of people were reevaluating their lives and their careers and so the the amount of inquiries that we got really shot up okay and then you had to ramp up production of of your products as well we did yeah especially uh, our online sales just went through the roof which i I understand happened to pretty much everybody uh, in this business and then you know once the, you know, the pandemic eased, it sort of went back to pre-COVID levels, you know, at that point. But yeah, it did require, you know, an increase in, in production on our own brand. Okay. So do you sell your products direct to consumer? We do through Agmore. Um We've been working with them for almost our entire 20 years. Uh, so we sell them, you know, we sell to them as a customer and then they resell it and handle all the direct to consumer fulfillment for us. So we don't do any direct to consumer uh, in-house here. Okay. Um, and everything then, we do is business to business. Okay. And then do you um, distribute through brick and mortar? Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. I have a, 
I had a, I have a saleswoman that came on almost 15 years ago and she single-handedly took us from, I, you know, I was doing my own sales calls was another mistake in my early years. And it's very hard for a founder to call a store and get rejected. You know, I was like, no, how can you say no to my products, right? These are my babies. So finally I was like, I hate doing this and I'm bad at it. So you know, I brought on Mary Jane and she was just, she is dynamite. And she, you know, she, she loves cold calling. It's a, to me, that's just like a, an alien creature, right? Somebody yeah. that likes the cold call, right? But she loves the cold call. And so she took us from, we had like two or three stores, I think, total when, when she first came on board. And she's got us in a couple thousand now. So, I mean, she's done that almost all by herself. That's great. Yeah, I've never heard of such a person before. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a really big difference. And there's a lot of, I mean, the industry's changing in terms of a lot of people who went through FAIR or the SFA, you know, uh, version of that. And so there's a lot of change in the way that that sort of thing is happening and making it easier for brands. But for a long time, it was just, you know, Mary Jane would just sit all day and work the phones and call stores and send samples and get orders and just build and build and build. And it, it just, it took a lot of work, but that's really what helped us grow. Okay. And then I know that you recently launched the Brownwood Farms brand. How did that come to be? We actually purchased the company out of Michigan in 2017. Um, they were up for sale. It's a long story, but they were up for sale and we had the opportunity to, to buy them. Um, and the brand does really well. I mean, they're, it, our previous brands were Bino DeMilo and JB's Best and, you know, they did okay. And we grew them and they did okay-ish, I would say, being very honest here and then we brought Brownwood Farms and man that stuff sells it was I was like oh this is how sales are supposed to be in this business <laughs> you know <laughs> and so that that brand had some just remarkable um, flavors remarkable customer uh, loyalty and so over the course of the, the years that we've had it now we basically phased out our other brands and moved all of the products that are doing well with you know some careful editing into the Brownwood Farms family so now we're seeing a single a single brand which is just Brownwood Farms. Okay. Um, and I read on your website that you wear a number of hats. Is it true that you continue to develop, to develop recipes? Me personally, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I am very honest about the things I'm good at and the things I'm not. We only have one product in our portfolio that I am personally responsible for at this point. Okay. Um, everything else, we have a food science team, product development team that, uh, that does the work and they are, they're just phenomenal at, you know, coming up with things and, making sure it works from a costing perspective and a flavor perspective, and, you know, doing a lot of testing and that sort of thing. So um, we're very, very creative, but a very creative team. Okay. So do you think your, your portfolio will always stay in the sort of um, shelf stable sauces and jams and jellies and condiments that you're playing in now? Yeah, at this point, there's just so much more opportunity. I mean, you see brands like Stonewall Kitchen and Terrapin Ridge and some of these larger companies that have done really well, and that's that's what they do. So there's a lot of opportunity out there. And I tell everybody when I teach these classes, there's room for everybody in this business, right? This is a very friendly business I have found. Um, and there's room for you know multiple brands doing the same types of products even. I mean, there's just there's a lot of desire from the co-pack, or excuse me, from the specialty food customer for a lot of variety and that's great. The more, the more of us out there, the better. Yeah. And then tell me about what's been happening with your, um, ingredient prices. Have you seen a rise? <laughs> <laughs> that could answer everything for you right there. It's just nuts. I mean, last year, one of our suppliers came back three times with a price increase three times in mm -hmm. one year. Yeah. And usually it's like, here's our annual you know, increase and it's 3%. And you know, third time it was a 20% increase. It was just, crazy. Our sugar prices have doubled. Oil prices have tripled. I mean, it's just, 
it's been it's been challenging to say the least. Have you had to pass the increases on to the consumer? We have. We did some, but we also uh, earlier this year, after a couple of years of work and planning, uh, launched a brand new plant that's giving us significantly increased efficiencies of the scale. So by doing that, we're able to better um, cover the cost without passing it on. Oh, that's great. Um, tell me about your most successful product. Our most successful product is the cherry barbecue sauce that uh, under the Brownwood Farms cherry barbecue sauce. It's that is it's a barbecue sauce that's basically no tomatoes. It's made with Michigan cherries and and I don't like cherries, which is I'm confessing a very private secret here. <laughs> Someone who sells something with a lot of cherries, but not a cherry fan. But I love this sauce, and it just it's we can't keep it on the shelf. It's it's unbelievable the velocity that that single product has all by itself. Uh, and then our second best seller is our famous cream mustard, which is a sweet and spicy uh, mustard. But what we're most proud of is our currently is our uh, first ever Sophie Gold Award winner, which is our dill pickle ketchup, which is really amazing. Is that a new product? Uh, it came out a year, year, sometime in the last year, year and a half, maybe. I, I can't remember exactly. It's it's fairly new uh, to the portfolio. Um, is that a ketchup that's flavored, that has a dill pickle flavor, or? It is. It has dill pickle flavor, and it has dill pickles. So when you actually like put you know spread it out, you see chunks of actual dill pickles in there, and it's just it's amazing. You open the jar, and it just smells like a jar of dill pickles. It's it's. Pretty remarkable, actually, that it would, you know, and it, it tastes, you can put it on a burger and you basically have got the, you know, the, 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 the ketchup and the pickles and, you know, a lot of the, the condiments you need for a burger right there in a jar. Oh, that sounds delicious. Do you it's do amazing? <laughs> do you do um, product sampling in store? We do. We do uh, demos. Um, we did a lot of those in our early years as we were building the brand. We don't do quite as much of them as we do um, anymore. But yeah, sampling is a key way to build sales for sure. And who is your target market? Well, it's probably the same as most specialty food companies. <laughs> it sounds like a business buying question, but you know, it's the uh, it's the folks that I mean, these are not in the specialty food world. These are not necessarily cheap products. I mean, our products sell in the six to ten dollar you know per unit range. So you know, it's obviously uh, folks that are in that income bracket where that's something that they can do and there's a lot of that out there it's it's just remarkable and a lot of people sometimes just buy these things even if they're not that because it's a treat you know to get something that's really it's really delicious and really different yeah um and are your products distributed through food service we they're not we did some for a while but uh just because of our manufacturing and a number of other things it just wasn't a practical way for us to uh to pursue brand growth Okay. And what would you say is next for your company? What is next for the company? Well, you know, we've just, like I said, we've just launched this new plant. And so getting this plant really dialed in and operation in, in a place where it's really, you know, working efficiently is probably the, you know, the, the major thing for the next year. And we also have some new products coming. We have a steak sauce and some other things that are, that are in the pipeline from Brownwood Farms um, as well. So we've got a, a lot of exciting things uh, in process and a lot of balls in the air right now. So it's a very, it's very interesting and sometimes stressful <laughs> business to be in. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time, but before you go, we'd like for you to participate in our final segment called take five, where we pose five questions to our guests. Okay. So fun. fun. <laughs> First, let's pause for a break. 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Okay, here are your five questions for our final segment, Take Five. What is your favorite thing about the specialty food industry? I love how collegial everybody is. I mean, everybody is friendly and helpful and willing to lend a hand and really willing to, to provide advice, you know, when needed. I, it's just, it's, it's a really, really good group of people. Okay. And what is the one thing that the Specialty Food Association has made easier for your business? Uh, I would say connecting with other makers uh, through not only through fancy food shows, but also just through education sessions and, you know, the online forums and things like that. So being able to talk to other people who do what you do and meet those folks and form friendships with them can be really good and really helpful, especially when you're having a tough day. It's nice to have someone you can call who understands what you're going through. Yeah. And we appreciate you, you know, sharing your expertise with our members. That's great. Of course. Um, and if you weren't running a business, what would you be doing? I have thought about that a lot, actually. Um, I, you know, I thought about doing something in the world of mentoring, especially food. I would also love to be doing something involving um, some sort of aid overseas. I mean, my parents were missionaries in Nepal. I'd love to go back to Nepal and do something at some point. Um, I don't know. I'm so focused on what I'm doing now that I don't seriously give that a lot of thought, but uh, that is something that I, at some point in my life, I'm going to have to figure out for sure. Okay. And what's the one piece of advice you would give a new food business? Make sure you have enough money. This is a very capital intensive business and people are always, always surprised at how much money it takes to, to make this uh, to make this go. And I, I tell people, take whatever number you have in your head and multiply it by four or 10. It's, I mean, it's just remarkable. That's been the biggest eye opener in my 20 years of doing this. And even after 20 years, I'm still surprised sometimes. And um, how do you define specialty food? I would say it's, I've thought about that a lot actually too, because that's a, that's a very good question and it's not something with a very simple uh, answer, but I think it's really unique products that are made with clean ingredients uh, that are made by smaller uh, brands that have a lot of heart invested in what they do. Great answers. A big thanks to Jonathan Milo Layal for joining us today. You can find out more about the show at specialtyfood.com and heritageradionetwork.org. And remember to follow wherever you get your podcasts. Come back often to get to know the people who are shaping the future of food. 
Special thanks to Jonathan and to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. This is Spill and Dish, a specialty food association podcast. Spill and Dish, a specialty food association podcast, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.